From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about back to school, and certainly we have been looking at crowding and overcrowding in some Surrey schools, well, other districts as well, but with the portables and hundreds of portables still being used in Surrey, is there a better way to build schools and to figure out exactly what communities are going to need before the schools are bursting at the seams? Well, Linda Annis is a Surrey City Councillor and is joining us now on the line to talk a little bit more about this. Councillor Annis, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. You put out uh, some information suggesting that uh, building schools and daycares and new developments, maybe incorporating them in towers could be a way to go or a different way of looking at this. Can you talk a little bit more about what it is you would like to see or at least see explored when it comes to building schools? Well, we need to be thinking in innovative ways when we're building schools. Surrey has had so many people moving here. In fact, uh, since 2018, I think we've had about 50,000 people move here, and we're not keeping up with it with schools. Uh, Unfortunately, going into the school this year, we will have 400-plus portables in Surrey, which makes us the capital of portables in British Columbia, which is not a good reputation for us to have. What I would like to see as we're building uh, the SkyTrain along Fraser Highway, that we look at uh, what we can do in innovative ways to build schools. We need about eight sites along the uh, Fraser Highway uh, as we're expecting uh, that population in that area will be in excess of 200,000. What I would like to see is us, as we're building residential towers, incorporating a school right into the podium as well as daycare. And how would that work then as far as it sounds like that's not at least how the province does it, how the education ministry does it. So is it breaking from working solely with the province and finding other partners? Well, I think what we need to do is look at other big cities, you know, New York, Boston, Chicago, just to name a few, you know, many places uh, throughout the world. Uh, We need to be working in partnership, the city, the developers, school district and the ministry we can't keep doing things the way we've always done them or we're going to get the same result you know what a benefit it would be to young families that are living in towers to be able to just ride the elevator down drop their kids off at school and daycare and then hop on the sky train and go off to work not having to you know juggle their kids all over every which way and you know we're also not using valuable land that uh, we need to build more residential sites on uh, so would they be smaller schools then than, than what we're used to seeing, especially in a place like Surrey? Uh, absolutely doesn't have to be. We need to be innovative in the way that we do it. One thing I would love to see is, you know, the towers that are particularly close to parks, you know, utilizing the parks for recreational activities for the kids. So, you know, it saves a lot of money. You know, we're not having to buy expensive land to build our school sites. So we should be able to get them in built much more quickly and much more convenient for young families here in Surrey. What about space as far as, say, gymnasiums and outdoor space and space for, say, recess and lunch and for physical activity? Well, you know, many cities, um, you know, that are large, you know, use the public spaces for, you know, the parks that we have, our recreation facilities. Oftentimes, they're not fully utilized during the day, so why not work together and use that space and you know certainly even if we have to add you know some extra parks it's a great thing if you're living in towers you need to have green space and let's work um, you know develop some synergies so that we're 
as we're planning our parks and recreation facilities, we're utilizing that for schools as well, not duplicating things. Uh, you mentioned as well, uh, so whether it's uh, taking a look at building schools in, in residential towers, new developments, and also this idea of public-private partnerships to get schools built faster. What would that look like? Well, that's a terrific model that has been tested out in both Regina and Red Deer and other locations as well, where a private company builds uh, multiple schools at one time. Uh, in Regina, they built um, around a dozen, if my memory serves me correct. They built them at one time. They then leased the school back to the school district and basically with a lease to purchase. So at the end of a number of years, the school is turned back to the school district school district then owns it and they have paid for the school as they um, go along. So it, what it allows them to do is to get a school built quicker. It's more efficient um, because you're you know, buying you know, large quantities of materials at one time, so cheaper. Uh, and it um, also doesn't um, allow the school or make the school have to have these huge capital outlays uh, uh, for school sites, they can amortize it over a longer period of time. What's the benefit to the private company then in that scenario? How, what's the enticement or why would they want to be involved? Well, there's a couple of enticements. First of all, uh, you know, they, they are getting paid. You know, they are uh, creating revenue uh, from leases uh, back to the school district. So, they're, you know, it is um, not dissimilar than building a, um, you know, a building, you know, a, a office tower and leasing it back to tenants. Kind of the same model. And would it matter what kind of company? I'm just thinking back a few years when I believe it was Chevron tried to to do a partnership where if you gassed up at Chevron, money would go into the school system. And it it wasn't direct advertising or anything, but it was that link. And I know at that point, it was in Vancouver, there was pushback from some trustees that didn't want private companies. I think it was specifically Chevron, but didn't want private companies involved. Do you think there could be potentially uh, some pushback there in, in bringing in private companies? Absolutely not, because we're not looking at, um, you know, services, service organizations to that. We're looking at companies that are in the business of building things, you know, big, large companies that build residential towers, that build office towers, that build fire halls, RCMP uh, detachments, uh, whatever it might be. You know, this is something that has been done for a number of years in many locations, just not in Surrey or in British Columbia. But we need to be looking and exploring every option that we have because our schools right now are in crises. You know, it's not right for kids um, that are starting kindergarten to have their whole school career in a portable. It's not acceptable. Their families are paying taxes and they deserve to have all the facilities um, available to their kids so they can get the best education. Uh, So are there any roadblocks at this point or what would stop a city like Surrey from doing this? Shifting away from it being the ministry, a provincial jurisdiction of building the schools and approving this. Is there anything that's stopping you from, from going ahead if this is something that the council chooses to do? It's not a council decision. This is something that I would be advocating to the ministry to take on and do, uh, as well as the school district. Certainly the city plays a role, particularly when we're you know, working um, in partnership um, and building residential towers to work with the developer. But the leadership needs to come from the Ministry of Education and the school district. Have you had any discussions uh, with the ministry at this point? I absolutely have, and you know they certainly seems to be interested in getting learning more about it. 
Uh, and certainly I've had conversations with the school district as well about building um, schools in the podiums of some of the towers along Fraser Highway. And I might add also in city centre, we need to be thinking out of the box. And I you know, am hopeful that um, people will be receptive to it. Well, were they receptive when you had those conversations? Absolutely. Um, they were receptive to talking about it, but now we need action. When would you like to see this, if this does go ahead, when would you like to see this happen? It needs to start right away. Part of the issue with schools, and particularly in Surrey because we're growing so quickly, we're building the schools as the demand is there. We're not being proactive, and we need to be proactive. So as we're planning to build these towers, the schools need to be opening the same time that the residential units are opening as well. Well, it's an interesting idea. Councillor, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time and for joining us. My pleasure, Joe. Well, we have been talking a lot about getting news, getting information online, and certainly about the Online News Act in this country, although not official at this point. We've certainly seen backlash from some companies, including Meta, saying they are not going to be providing Canadian links, providing Canadian news on Canadian sites. This doesn't appear to be directly linked to that, but it is frustrating for the mayor of Princeton. And the mayor of Princeton, Spencer Coyne is joining us now to talk more about the removal of some of the civic links on community Facebook pages. Mayor Coyne, thank you so much for being with us. You betcha. How are you? Uh, very well. How about you? Good, thanks. Uh, so what, is, what has happened here? These were links that were on pages that were helping people, getting information to people. And what happened? Yeah, um, all of a sudden, uh, Facebook started removing all of the links back to the municipal website. Um, going back to four years ago. And, and how did you find out about this? <laughs> one of the administrators of one of the Facebook groups in the community contacted me just to let me know that uh, my staff's um, links had all been removed. And uh, when I checked uh, the other groups in town, it was the same thing. And what kind of links, what kind of information was this? Everything from meeting notices to bylaws to uh, emergency management uh, posts from the past. And and like you said, so and four years worth of that. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> and so, so did you get a reason or an explanation as to why these were all removed? Nothing yet. Um, I do administer some of those Facebook pages from when uh, before I was an elected official, and I appealed them, and they came back as a as a as a denial. They, they kept them down. But did they tell you why? If this, uh, from uh, what I understand, it's a cybersecurity. <laughs> huh? Is what? Yeah, it's a it's a really weird one. Um, like, there's nothing there. I mean, it's just a link back to the municipal website, and with you know a link to a bylaw or or even a meeting. So. And did they clarify though, or did they say that this? Because the timing just seems so strange. But did they say this was not connected to the online news bill, the federal bill? They have not res- given me any reason other than the one where they removed them. And just saying that uh, that it goes against our rules when it comes to cybersecurity. Yeah, it's a community. Uh, one second. Um, yeah, it's just. It's really, really weird. Like, it's not anything to do with the news blackout, but it feels like it. Right. And, and, and is it because of given the timing or because of the, the fact that we are talking about links? 
I think it's because it's a link, right? Uh, everything else that we've posted, whether it's, you know, just a picture or a graphic that we created, that's all still there. But anything that is a link back to the website has been been removed. And when so, you're talking about that, that information, are there other places for people to access that information? Uh, so, yeah, you'd have to go into our website and find it on our website itself. But um, everything on social that's in a group you can still get it off our off of our main municipal um facebook page it's allowing us to post there but not into any of the community groups right and and how important is it do you think as far as how much do people use the facebook the community groups and and go to that go to that specific site to facebook to those groups to get that information uh, there's just about 3000 people in town and there's 13, there's over 1300 members, almost 1400 members of that group. So it's a, it's an extremely important communication tool for the municipality. And, and especially given, I don't know if, I think you touched on this, but so whether or not it also has, you know, wildfire information or, or other information that, that is pretty important for people to get. It seems like it is something that, that you'd want to make it as easy as possible for people to access that. Exactly. And Facebook has become, you know, sadly to say, but, you know, Facebook has become our fastest means of communication with the community. We have, you know, we have an app, we have other other tools, but it seems to be Facebook is the one that the community is always watching and monitoring, especially these community groups. Uh, are you hearing from people or have you heard from residents or people wondering where the information has gone? Yeah, they're they're frustrated. Um you know, there's been some conversation because I'm trying to direct everybody back to our our main Facebook page. Um, so they're they're frustrated. They they don't understand why it's happening. You know, they're saying that it's all about censorship and whatnot. But um, no, people are frustrated that we can't post information anymore. And you mentioned that you haven't really been given a reason other than the the pop up or it says cybersecurity. Uh, has it been difficult to, to try and even reach or get somebody at Meta at Facebook to to talk about this? Yeah, I don't seem to have any contact with them at all. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's nuts. I mean, I'm looking at one right now that went that was denied our appeal, and it says it goes against our community standards on community are in cybersecurity and it's the bylaw was passed on 20 April 2022 of to allow carriage houses and that's all it is <laughs> with a link back to the bylaw and it's been denied um, an appeal so it's it makes no sense at all and when you say it's been denied an appeal so exactly that that if you're you were trying to explain to them well hold on a second this is just showing a bylaw this is just something that uh, you know it's community information but there's there's no way for you to make that appeal yeah i made so when you you get in a chance to appeal it and you you write why and that's what i said this is official information from the town of princeton website this is this is a bylaw and it came back we're keeping it down. That's all we get is we're keeping it down with a little hammer beside it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that makes it better or worse, I mean, the, the picture of the hammer beside it. Uh, right? <laughs> it, it also, see, I know the timing is very strange given the, the blocking of, of news sites, but, but also, I mean, it's not, it's a community group. It's not that you would think that, that even if it got swept up in that, that it's actually not a news organization, not a news publisher. And it, and it seems strange that, that it kind of is being treated that way. Exactly. Um, you know, I've, I've been concerned about this since I heard that this was going to happen, that 
that information, especially news from local government, um, was going to be treated the same way. And I hope this isn't the case, but it kind of feels that way right now. And you mentioned too, so this is information that goes back a few years. Has it? Did it all happen at once or is this happening that every time you go to the community page, there's something else missing or something else has been taken down? Uh, it was over two days. I think there was about 50 different posts that were removed over over about a 24-hour span over two days. And are there posts that are similar to the ones that were removed that are still there? Uh None with our links on them. Those are those all seem to be. I can't find any that are ours, anyways. Um, it's usually our staff that post them, and then now they're gone. But I've heard in Karameas the same thing is happening with some of theirs, and up in the Shushwap as well. I was just going to ask if you'd heard from any other mayors or other uh, com- uh, communities that have these similar pages that uh, are going through the same thing. Yeah, everybody. Um, well, down in Karameas, which is the closest neighbor to us, uh, they've their community groups have noticed the same thing. Uh, so is it a, a, at this point then, if, if you're not able to get to answers or to get a reversal from Meta and to get to the pages, the community groups on Facebook to carry the information again, what does that mean as far as getting the information out? Is it kind of re-educating people or making sure people know they can go to the Princeton official website to, or, or trying to, to, to make some kind of community group on another platform? Yeah, that's what we're working on right now. Um, we've tried to direct everybody back to our main, our main source of information. Um, you know, you can go back to our Facebook, our Town of Princeton Facebook page. It still seems to be able to carry links for just not the groups. Um, and then you can also register for uh, media, you know, updates off of our website. Um, but we don't have, you know, a local radio station that's in town anymore that's live, and we don't have a TV station. So. Um, it makes it really hard to get, you know, up-to-date information in a quick way out to the residents without the use of social media. So we're we're trying to figure out how to do that right now, and especially if this is a ongoing thing. Right, because how do you even let people know that it's it's not there anymore, or or what's happened to it if if that they're seeing it or maybe don't know that it's missing? And what other kind of format or platform do you even use to get that information out? Exactly, and how do you get thousands of people to switch over to some other place at the same time? It's it's not very feasible right now. Is it concerning as far as I know? Some of the information, like you said, is is a bylaw or it's something about a carriage house, and it's not it's not really time sensitive. But are your concerns also that there could be information that is safety related or that is 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 very important information to get out there that is not going to get to people? Uh, that'd be my number one concern right now: is what happens if there is something you know drastic that happens um you know there's another festival coming here on the weekend and you know what happens if we have to use social media to to get information out in a quick way and if we can't post that then we have to work you know do workarounds so that means posting through our own personal facebook pages and and whatnot and trying to find another way to disseminate that that information without it being flagged by Facebook to be taken down. Have you tried doing it without the links or is it even possible to do that? Uh, some cases you wouldn't be able to, you'd have to, you know, make, I guess, a PDF into photographs and, and then share them that way. I mean, some of these documents are rather large. I mean, that's what we'll end up doing if we have to, if it's, you know, an evacuation, we'll end up creating 
pictures right now to try to get those out and then posting them directly to Facebook. But um, it doesn't really, it's, it's more time consuming and it means we might miss people. Yeah, it does seem like a, a lot more steps just to get the same information out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so have you given up at this point trying to reach Meta or trying to get a, more of an answer from that company and now looking for other avenues? Or is it worth, do you think, still trying to reach out and get some more clarification? Um, a little bit of both. <laughs> um, you know, with with the whole news lockdown, it's something we've already been talking about is how do we get our message out even, you know, without having all access to social media, because we do rely heavily on media to help us get our message out. So without having access to links on, you know, local or regional media outlets, um, we've been trying to figure out just how do we do this without using Facebook and Meta. And, you know, for us, it's, it's a bit of a challenge because everybody's kind of migrated into Meta and it's been such a dominant platform for such a long time um there's some big challenges ahead of us and and i think every municipality needs to be thinking about the same thing like we put so much stock into these platforms what happens if they go like like remember myspace it's gone right (laughs) what happens if you know facebook or meta or whatever we're calling them now decides the same thing like we're gonna we're gonna just keep you know hammering the canadians and we don't have access to these tools anymore. So we do have to figure this out. Um, even if they change their their tune and they come back and let us start posting things again, we still need to have a alternative. So um, my team and myself, we're, we're discussing these things right now and we're trying to figure out how do we move forward. Well, uh, keep us uh, uh, in the loop uh, somehow, obviously not uh, using the community group right now for doing that, (laughs) but uh, we'll definitely follow up on this. Spencer Coyne, thank you so much for your time today. You bet. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, some really interesting research, and this is looking at how some fish are surviving heat waves much better than it was anticipated. So how are they doing it? Giuliano Palacios Brantes is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries and is joining us now. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. This, Excited to be here. Well, it's such uh, so interesting looking at the, the different types of marine life and what has been studied. So take us back to what you were looking at as far as looking at warmer temperatures, heat waves, and how fish are surviving throughout these. Sure. Um, so in the ocean, we have two main ways that we can think about climate change impacts. One is the slowly but steady increase in temperature of the oceans that we've seen uh, since the Industrial Revolution. And the other is what we call marine heat waves, which is this very specific moments where the temperature hikes up like we have in land and it gets really, really hot and it can last for five to 10 days to even more. So those impacts are what we're looking here is how would that affect marine life? And I know there has been study or, or past studies that looked at this this warmer o- ocean temperatures or prolonged periods of warmer temperatures. And is this kind of going from what was found there and seeing if things are changing or seeing kind of which fish are the most resilient? 
Correct. So there has been a series of studies uh, made by colleagues. Uh, some of them use uh, empirical data sampling from the ocean. Some others use models. And they all suggest that, or most of them suggest that, as you have more marine heat waves under climate change, fish will be um, highly impacted. However, what we found in our study, uh, we used um, about 50 years of, of sample data from uh, mostly North America, Europe, and Europe. And we were not able to statistically confirm an overall effect on marine heat waves on the amount of fish in the water. Sure, in some cases, um, we found that uh, the number of fish decreased. And as you can remember, the, for example, the blob in the North Pacific in 2014, we could find that and we saw that in our data and also in the Atlantic, but in some cases actually uh, fish increased. Hmm. And so is it that they adapted to the warmer temperatures or did you come up with a reason as to in, in some cases why it was increasing? Mm, no, I mean, we have a series of uh, hypotheses for that. One possibility is that we have a, actually like a sampling bias where we are only documenting the most impactful events. Uh, so we believe marine heat waves are always drastic, but um, actually in our study, we identified over hundreds of uh, marine events. And I like to think it like that. Like I grew up in Mexico City where there's a lot of earthquakes, but we really only notice the earthquakes through our five, six on the ritual scales. But actually, experts say that in Mexico City, there's earthquakes almost every day. So we think earthquakes are very dangerous, but actually they happen uh, way more than we think. So this could be one one situation where we only are only thinking on the really extreme marine heat waves. All right. So what did you find then if you're looking at the various types of fish and, and how, how much does it matter where the fish are in that they're lower in the ocean as opposed to closer to the surface? Right. So our study looked at past where uh, climate change was uh, more stable than, than it is now. And it looked specifically at bottom uh, fish. So these are fish that live um, closer to the bottom of the ocean, where arguably um, marine heat waves or potential be less impactful than the fish on the surface. So for these community of fish, like rockfish, halibuts, uh, cod, the effects of marine heat waves were not so apparent. That doesn't mean though that um, other studies from other colleagues uh, found that, for example, coral reefs and uh, other um, super, uh, fish that live more on the surface have been drastically impacted by marine heat waves. Right. And when we've talked about that in the past, when you talk about coral reefs and, and the dying off or kelp forests and that. So, so d does the research show then that things like that that are closer to the surface uh, maybe are more exposed to, to the warmer water that they do suffer the consequences a lot more? We didn't, in our data set, we didn't have any species on the surface or coral reefs, but uh, other studies from, from, from colleagues have shown that if you have long periods of uh, high temperature, um, coral reefs uh, can be highly impacted. And as coral reefs impact, they are the base of the ecosystem in, 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 in various places. And as we saw in the blob, for example, in 2014, uh, some species were, um, were identified in places that have, haven't been before. Um, 
so this so the, these these are cases where species are on the surface where um, marine heat wave could be more intense than in the bottom of the water column. And when you talk about the blob, can you remind us again, the blob was was that big, uh, a lot of warm ocean water. Do we know or what caused the blob and where it was exactly again? Yes, yes. Uh, so the blob was, um, as you, it was in two, 2014 and 2014 and 15 in North America. And it basically was a time where the sea surface temperature uh, in front of British Columbia and Northern United States um, was quite higher than, than average. It was I believe it was about 1.5 to 2 degrees higher than, um, than, than normal it is. And that caused, um, that had quite some repercussion on, on marine fish and also in, in, in fishing communities that depend on that fish. And did it, what happened to it? Did it kind of uh, just kind of peter out or where did it go? Yeah. So after, after a while, um, these are periods of, these are periods of times where temperature spikes and keeps on that high level until it goes down. But then um, I I believe in 2019, um, there was another one called, I think they call it uh, the blob 2.0. And this is what, um, it's, this is what it, we cautious in our study that since we looked at the past, but uh, but we don't know what the future holds. And if we don't reduce emissions, uh, marine heat waves can become more intense, can become more frequent, or it can even become longer. And then we don't really know if the system uh, will be able to have this natural capacity to resist the perturbations that we are finding, at least for now, in our data set and our study. So is it a, a bright spot then, or, or is it welcome news that finding the, the fish that you mentioned, like the rockfish, the halibut, the cod, finding that they're, they're not as negatively impacted by this as maybe we thought they were going to be? Is that, is that a positive take from this, that the fish are able to, to withstand these warmer temperatures? Yes, I like to say that it's a it's a it's a bright spot. It's a it's a it's a it's a result that shows like look, climate change is impacting fisheries, is impacting marine life. But at least as far as we can say with the data and the methods that we did, we could not see a direct negative effect of marine heat waves in this um, group of of, of fish. Um, but the point here is. If we reach a tipping point where climate continues to warm, um, then the system could lose that resilience. And we don't really know what tipping po- where the tipping point is. And we don't really want to know. We don't want to reach it. Right. Right, because if we reach the tipping point, it's I would imagine it's a bit too late at that point if that's if we're seeing all of the negative impacts on the fish life at that point. Right. So when because once the idea is that when when you reach that tipping point, then the system um, will not be able necessarily to resist this anomaly event. And so, as more as more intense marine heat waves you have, and more frequently, you can start seeing that these fishing com- fish communities are actually going to be impacted. And that's not considering the others that are already being impacted, like as we say, coral reefs or 
other surface, um, more of the surface uh, fish. It is very interesting research. Giuliano, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for making the time and for sharing this with us. Oh, thank you, Jillian. And thanks for having me. There has been a lot of talk about the use of cell phones in schools and some schools taking the step of telling students they are not to be on their phones when school, when class is in session. Well, one school in Saanich, Belmont Secondary, is going a little bit further, saying to the students there they will have to put their phones in a container and that container will be provided. It will then be at the front of the class or they have to store their phones in their bags on silent mode. So how is this all going to play out and why was this decision made? Joining us to talk more about this is Don Peterson, the president of the Saanich Teachers Association. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me. I should make a correction. I believe you said Belmont was a Saanich school. It's, it's actually a Souk school. Oh, my apologies. Yeah. So, sorry, yeah. Belmont Secondary in Souk. Yes. That's right. uh, yeah. can you, how big of a deal, how big of a problem is it, students being on their phones when they're supposed to be paying attention to what is happening in the classroom? You know, like I, I believe, depending on, on which teachers that you talk to, will will determine the, the problem. Um, myself, when I'm in the classroom, I'm a grade four or five uh, teacher. Um, I myself have never seen a phone um, from my students, but I know that a vast majority of my students have phones. They just keep them in their backpack and they, they don't actually bring, bring them out. I would suspect um, in the high schools, um, more students own phones, more students are probably using it during the day. Um, and depending on the uh, teacher's practice, it could pose a problem or you know, and many teachers may actually be um, have u- utilizing technology more in, in their classroom, which they would allow the, the cell phone use to be used. Um, it's a debate to be had for sure. Right. And I guess finding that balance of making sure that students are reachable if they need to be reached, but also not yeah. being a disturbance or being a distraction. Exactly. Exactly. And- Right. So you were saying, so you haven't noticed it in the, in the younger grades, but, and again, this is Belmont secondary. So the, so the Mm -hmm. older grades, does it seem like a drastic step to make it that you either have to have it in your bag, silent and tucked away, or you have to put it in a container at the front of the class? You know, when you you look around and and think about the conversations that we're we're having around technology and and cell phones, um, I I don't believe that this is necessarily a drastic step. I think it's a debatable step. Um, I think there's going to be some positives from from taking the step, but I also think that there potentially are going to be a few negatives around it as well. I think every teacher and every school and every school district are trying uh, new things in regards to how to navigate around technology in the classroom. Right. And it seems like it's something, and I know the education minister was asked about it earlier today as well, and her response was basically it needs to be a school-by-school decision, that if there is, say, a school or a class where it's become a huge issue, then maybe a rule needs to be brought in. But, say, a class like yours where it's not, then then it would be a mm-hmm. bit a bit of an overkill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I would tend to agree. Like in... Uh, I do know in, in my my classroom we we had relatively good access to laptops. If I wanted to get laptops in my class um, at some point during the day, I'm going to be able to do it. I do know in some of the high schools that are larger, 
Um, they might not have the same level of access to laptops um, to get technology, and maybe some teachers are not afraid to rely on students having their own devices in order to get that access. Right, so students and using, say, the school Wi-Fi, but actually using their devices when it comes to researching or that kind of thing? Exactly. Like um, One thing that many schools and districts are starting to move away from are paper textbooks. As you know, once a textbook is printed, it's printed. And if they need to make a change, you need to buy a new textbook. Um, With online textbooks, um, they can be changed on a moving forward basis. But the challenge is that you need a device to be able to access that. Um, If a school has ample access to those devices, then students are going to have lots of access to the textbooks. Uh, But if they don't, again, maybe a teacher is going to need to rely on student devices to get access to those textbooks. Are there any concerns of uh, kind of fairness or equality if there does happen to be a classroom or or a a grade where there are some students that don't have cell phones? Yeah, I I would say in any situation where a teacher needs to rely on students for anything, uh, technology or um, paying fees or parent transportation or anything like that, uh, you need to be aware that not all families have the same level of resources and you should be prepared to accommodate those members. So if if anybody's relying on student fees, some people might not be able to pay it. If you're relying on students to bring uh, their technology to school, um, you have to be prepared that not all students are going to have that technology and you need to have at least some uh, devices uh, ready to go. Right. Yeah, because I could see that being, and even if it's some, for whatever reason, whether it's maybe you come from a household where you have yeah. to be 18 before you get a cell phone, although I don't know if there are still households yeah. like that, or for whatever reason that you don't have a phone, it would hate to, you'd hate to be the one person singled out for not having it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I agree with that. So. Uh, can it be used as something then as well? I mean, we all know our phones can be huge distractions, but it sounds like there there are ways then if you're going to in- integrate it into the classroom learning, into the curriculum, to, to use it as an asset. And But I guess then it's, it's unless you're the teacher, are you monitoring each student to make sure they're mm-hmm. actually doing the task on hand and, and not doing mm-hmm. something that's completely unrelated? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, one of... One of my thoughts around phones is the many different things that you can do with a phone these days that you didn't do before. If I want to read the newspaper, I'm going to pick up my phone and and read the newspaper off my phone. Or if I'm going to read a book or if I want to know what's on TV, I go to my phone. Um, You go to your phone for so many things. Um, If I want to work on my budget, I'm going to pull up my phone and use my calculator on my budget. Um, I use my, my phone constantly for so many different things today. Why... Suddenly, when you're in a classroom, you can't do that, right? Right. Um, you use your phone for so many things, but in the classroom, why, why wouldn't you be allowed to do that in the classroom? But but again, I, I know I was at a teacher's conference um, there a few weeks ago. We have open plenary, and guess what? I had my phone, and I was reading this, and I was reading that, and I wasn't really paying attention to the open plenary that I should have been paying attention to. I'm sure in the classroom, we're going to encounter the same challenges. Uh, Teachers speaking at the front, students on their devices, are they listening or are they taking notes? 
Right. Or, do, yeah. or again, doing something. I think we've all been guilty of that, haven't we? It's something if it's if it's not fully engaging and your phone's there, uh, it can be pretty easy to suddenly be doing something that has nothing to do with what you're supposed to be focused on. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I know in this case as well, in, in Belmont Secondary, uh, the, the, a letter went out saying that this is all about a healthy learning environment and that there might be uh, something that if, if this seems too harsh, that there could be, say, technology breaks and then a chance for, for students to check phones during class. And I guess is it kind of a learning curve in that sense that, again, you have to figure out what works best for the classroom? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and I'm sure as Belmont goes through their, their new policy, they're going to find some benefits and they're, they're going to find some challenges and they will make adjustments um, as, as needed uh, to try to find out what works best for them. Right. And, and again, with the different ages and that, do you think, is there a fear of losing anything as far as physical talking to one another or working, say, doing group work or, or handwriting something if we are using cell phones and, and bringing them in as one of these tools that, that's pretty heavily relied on? Yeah. Um, I, you know, like at the end of the day, I, I don't think so. Um, are we going to lose out on conversation because there's a cell phone um, in the room? Well, guess what? I'm talking to you through my cell phone, right? <laughs> um, I, I, in that regard, I, I don't think that's that's going to happen. Like, you might have the cell phone. It doesn't necessarily mean that the conversation needs to end. Um, I think in those types of situations, like developing etiquette around cell phones um, is is important. Um, and if you're having a class conversation or if you want there to be group conversations, there needs to be an understanding of the etiquette and the rules around that. And if there are times where cell phones need to be put down, um, then that's an etiquette that's going to have to be taught. And, and clearly a lot of teachers and are doing this, and this is making mm-hmm. its way through a lot of classrooms. Don Peterson, thank you so much. We'll yep. leave it there today, but thank you so much sure. for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.